Happy New Year, everybody. Got to say that, right? It's January 5th. Haven't seen you guys in a while. It's great to be here. Um, you know, it's exciting for me to think that, and, and, and in church planning, you always have to celebrate everything that's celebratable. Okay, are you ready? We're in our second year as a congregation. I know what you're thinking, dude, it's only been like four months. Yeah, but right, 2013, now we're to 2014. Let's celebrate what God is doing. You know, so uh, Happy New Year. I'm excited about what we have in store for us uh, as a church this year. Now, last week we started a series uh, called Why. And really the idea is why renovation? Why, why does Renovation Church exist at all? Like, what are we trying to accomplish here? What's, what do we think is the, the reasoning behind what we're trying to do here in, in the Liverpool area? And basically, the idea is we're going to take a look at, in three weeks, our mission statement. Oh, okay. That's all right. I'll just talk loud while you change it. We're looking at our, our mission statement, right? Last week, Jeremy uh, did a great job, I think, in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36, unpackaging that last uh, passage in a very long section in the book of Romans. You all set? It's all right. Thank you, Paul. Give it up for Paul. Is it on? There, great. And uh, basically, we saw that last verse, right? For from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Right? Everything exists for the glory of God. And surely when we talk about why does Renovation Church exist, we're going to answer the question, rightly so, biblically so, that it exists for the glory of God. Nothing else. Right? Paul read Psalm, or Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. It's all about the glory of God. That's why we're here. And our mission statement goes on to talk about, and that's what we're talking about tonight, uh, that next piece. That we're here, it exists for the, to glorify God by equipping all Christ's people to live a faithful life of worship. So what we're going to talk about tonight has a lot to do still with the glory of God. We're not going on to something else. The question is, how does the glory of God get made known? How is it manifest in the lives of us as a church, in the lives of His people? What does that look like for Renovation Church to glorify God? How is it going to glorify God? It's got much to do with the glory of God, but how it's manifest in the substance of your life. Are you tracking with me yet? How the glory of God translates into our life, our, the substance of who we are as followers of Jesus. I believe what we're going to take a look at tonight will also expand the scope of our understanding of salvation. We have a small view of salvation, often. God is going to expand the scope of our understanding of His saving grace. And at the same time, I believe this year, and I think fittingly so, January 5th, the first Sunday of the, uh, of the year, God is going to challenge us and call us to change. You hear that? You need to change. You've not made it yet. I've got to change. I've not arrived at the destination. As my wife will testify, you've got to change. Right? The listening ear cannot leave this place tonight with a stagnant heart. If you truly hear the short scriptures tonight, you cannot leave this place 
with a stagnant heart. God has much in store for you. His call is clear. And as we're about to read, His call comes with it a wonderful provision from His hand. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Right, Jared, uh, last week, Romans 11, 33-36. And now, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's see what God wants to say to His people, say to us, in these few verses. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. This is God's Word. Amen. I'm going to feel a little deja vu here for a moment. One of my pet peeves in life, this whole RSVP culture. Okay? You know, we put it out on the city, or you get an invitation in the mail for a wedding, or something like that. You get, you know, the invitation, it says, will you attend? It's real simple. Yes or no? <laughs> and we stare at it like this is the most difficult decision that I've ever made in my entire life. It's so difficult that I refuse to make it, actually. I, I, if I say yes, that, that means I've got to go now, right? Sounds like commitment. If I say no, then what if I change my mind? Like, what if my schedule opens up, I'm really bored, and I would really like to go all of a sudden? What I'm going to do is I'm just going to let it sit. I might text you five minutes before the event and let you know, right? Am I exaggerating? No, I'm not exaggerating. This is my generation. This is what we do. We don't want to commit. We don't want to RSVP, right? It's optional. Somebody sends you an invitation, it's optional. You can do whatever you want with it. Don't be forced to do anything, Right? Maybe I've got issues and you're thinking this guy's weird. I don't know, but I think it's kind of true. Look what Paul says. He's not inviting anyone to do anything. There's no recommendation. There's no invitation. He's not looking for your RSVP. He is speaking to the Roman Christian, uh, Christians with very authoritative language. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, he said. And that word appeal is a summons. You heard it. A summons, a, a demand, a requirement. You must do this. There's no option. There's no yes or no. You have to respond to it. There's an appropriate response, and there's an authority that comes with it. He's using an, authority, uh, an authoritative word. He's summoning the Roman Christians to do something. And again, we don't like authority, do we? And I'm sure the Roman Christians, although they understood authority, being in Rome, the emperors there, the whole bit, Caesar, they understood it, but they're still not big fans of it, because human nature, we're not fans of authority, we're in, and, and surely today we live in an anti-authority age. Nobody wants to be told what to do, and so when we hear Paul say, I appeal to you, I summoned you, 
with great authority. That really rubs against culture. It rubs against human nature. We're not really interested in that. Who does Paul think that he is? On what basis, what grounds does this mere man of a different age On what basis can he summon me to do anything? And I love what he goes on to say next. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. There's his basis. There's his grounds. There's his foundation. His authority and his reason and his grounds is coming from the mercies of God. That is the brothers, right? You see that phrase. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the brothers and sisters in the Lord. Those who, if you look back, had embraced Jesus, had heard the message, and become children of God, who are now brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who had been recipients of the mercy of God, those people are the ones that are summoned to do something. They receive something. Now, because they have received something, there's an inherent summons to respond. The mercies of God. What does Paul mean by the mercies of God? What is he getting at? Well, if you look back the previous couple chapters, we see that God in His grace and in His sovereignty has poured out mercy on all, Jew and Gentile, right? Chapters 9 through 11. You look at verse 32 of 11. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. In view of that mercy, in view of the mercy of God that he has lavished upon all, Jew and Gentile, not just the Jewish nation, not just Israel, but both the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, are now, are now hearing of and being able to receive this great mercy of God. What mercy of God? Romans 1 through 8. Right? The articulation of this gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes. That's the mercy of God. When Paul is summoning the Roman Christians to do something, he's making that summons, that authoritative appeal, on the basis of all that God has done in Jesus Christ. For them. In them. It's his mercy. Is that the thing that is the foundation and the grounds for such an appeal. It is the gospel. See, our salvation uh, it's so much bigger than we would imagine. It's not just a ticket to a nice resting place when we die. Salvation is something that when received, when mercy is received, it is something that, that by the power of it, by the implications of it, summon the person who receives it to a completely new way of existing. Amen. Salvation surely is then what we await. I'm not trying to dispel our hope for heaven in the kingdom of God where we will no longer know sin, where we'll be in the, the uninhibited uh, presence of Jesus. Let's hope for that. But man, salvation is today. We're called to respond accordingly as recipients of the mercy of God. So understand this, if you're here tonight and you have not received Jesus, do not hear the summons to respond. But hear this, know Jesus, who he is, all that he has done in the cross to die in your place for your sin 
and trust him and believe in him and give all that you are to all that he is, knowing that you are perfect in the presence of God because of him. That he accepts you because of Jesus. My plea to you tonight is not to do anything other than just receive and believe in Jesus. But friends, if you have received him before, if you claim to believe in Jesus, listen to the plea. Hear the summons of Paul to all those who have received it to do something on the basis of that. It's an empowered summons. The mercy is something that that translates into our living. right? I think our view of Christian living is small because our view of salvation is small. This is what God has done in Christ. The gospel is so much bigger. Salvation includes a summons to live on a faithful life of worship. And so many of you now are even getting overwhelmed. Because the call of God can be overwhelming for us as people. Uh, We're called to do something now. We're called to respond. How am I going to do that? I don't have what it takes. What am I to do? And I love this because God's call upon us is always on the basis of His mercy that He's given to us. It's never devoid of His help. His call is never uh, without provision. So if you're here overwhelmed by the call, and we haven't even talked about the specifics of that call yet, but if you're already feeling overwhelmed by the call of God, the summons to respond, please feel the overshadowing of the grace of the presence and the mercy of God. Jill Briscoe, I'll never forget this quote. Jill Briscoe said, when you feel overwhelmed, know that you're overshadowed. Right? So often, God shows up, to, shows up in our lives and His presence and His call is overwhelming. But yet, is it not His hand on our shoulder that says, do not fear? I'm with you. Has he not given us a new heart in his spirit who lives inside of us that empowers our obedience to him? He has. When we feel overwhelmed, we can know that we're overshadowed. Amen? God's mercy is something that summons us. And what does it summon, summon us to? Look at what he says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What are we called to do? The summons is to de- the dedication of our whole life to Him. Why does He use that term bodies? So that we don't think that it's just about something that we do on the inside, as if it's not the whole person. Right? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're called to give. That language is is basically saying, give all that you are to all that He is. So the appropriate response, the, the summons, is that as recipients of the mercies of God, we are now ones who give all that we are to all that He is. And this is difficult for us. Why? We are so good at being partially devoted aren't we? We are so good at proportional commitment. 
We are experts in percentages. We like to give God a piece of our lives and not all of it. But this summons is one to give all of who we are to all that He is. To dedicate our whole life to Him. American Christianity, isn't it that? We like God to be in a specific place, a place that's minimal, in a place that's manageable. It's where we like Him to be. That's where we want Him to stay. And really, worship for us has been outlined is really a simple way of living. Really, a, a way of living that doesn't require God to be at work at all in our lives. If we just give 10% of our cash, right? Read our Bibles a couple times a week. We go to church nine times out of ten. If we join a small group, now we're really getting holy. Right? And if we vote for George W. Bush, then by all means, I mean, you know, we're in the kingdom. Right? That's worship. Voting Republican is like, yay! You must be a believer. I'm being silly at this point. You can do any of those things without God's help. And there are many people that do. They put on a show. This is some religious activities that I do that make me look like I'm living a life totally dedicated to God. But when the push comes to shove, when marriages, business dealings, financial decisions, when nobody's looking, their thought life, the patterns of their, of their, the, and the posture, the attitude of their heart, it's no different. And it's not really totally dedicated to Almighty God. Our response to the gospel must be so much more than this, shouldn't it? God's mercy summons the dedication of our whole lives to Him in worship. See, I want to add that. In worship. What's the language there? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That term present is an offering. It's a giving. That's worship language. As a living sacrifice. A sacrifice. That's worship language. Right? We're, used, we're accustomed to sacrifices dying. But the beauty is Jesus was the last sacrifice that died. The only perfect sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sins. So now our sacrifice is one that is alive. It's a living sacrifice. It's worship language. Holy and acceptable to God. Worship is about enjoying and achieving, at least in the, in the old acceptance from God. And then, of course, which is your spiritual worship. Worship. It's all about worship. Right? This, this summons, because of being recipients of the mercies of God, this summons is the dedication of our whole lives to Him in worship. Worship is what we're called to do. Worship is our whole life. Worship is what God wants from our life. You say, what does God want? God wants worship. That's what He wants. That's why He made us. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We get a glimpse of heaven. What do we see? The, the creatures and the angels. And what do we see? We see them engaging in worship. This is what God wants. When Jesus talks to the woman at the well, and uh, they're talking about worship, they're having the worship debate, right? As we continue to have these days. And, you know, they're having this debate back and forth, and Jesus tells the, the woman, it's the Father that seeks worshipers. He's seeking people to worship Him in spirit and truth. Right? In our day, we have the seeker-sensitive debate. 
Right? We've got to be sensitive in our worship to the seeker. True statement. But who's ultimately the seeker? The Father. The Father is the seeker of us. He wants us to worship Him. That's what it's all about. Why did He dispense all of His mercy in Jesus Christ upon us? So that He could get what He wants. Our worship of Him. And friends, this is what our God deserves, does He not? Our God deserves our worship. Right? That's, you look at the language. For, it says, which is your spiritual worship? Other translations may say, which is your rational worship or your reasonable act of worship? The idea here is this. That because of the mercy of God, you're going to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that makes all the sense in the world. Given all that God has done, Surely, it's logical and reasonable and rational for us to give all that we have and all that we are to Him. Right? This is not illogical. This makes all the sense in the world. If you truly understand just a little bit about the profound nature of the grace and the mercy of Jesus for us as sinners undeserved recipients of all that He's given us. If we truly go there and understand the the wonder of the cross of Christ, surely we're giving all that we are to Him. Amen? Amen. It's rational. It's logical. It's not crazy talk. It makes all the sense in the world. God's mercy summons the dedication of our whole lives to Him. In worship. That's what God wants. And you know, this is what we want, isn't it? Again, because we understand the nature of the mercy of God, and we just can't help it. Right? We just can't help it. But praise Him and honor Him and give Him all that we have. It's a joy for us to do that. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Not just present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In view of the mercies of God, because of that, do not be conformed to this world. Bullseye on our struggle. Bingo on our propensity. This is who we are. We are so often Tragically, conformists, aren't we? Tim's a man. We're conformists. Culture's heading in that direction, and we are experts. We're very good and naturally inclined to simply go with the flow, aren't we? We go with the flow. The sad reality is that even those who say they've received mercy from Jesus, who believe in Him and belong to Him, the sad reality is is that there's no uh, distinguishing difference between their lives, the substance of who they are, and the rest of the world. It's 
just one of conformity. I'll never forget reading the book Unchristian. Anybody read that book? I know it's kind of old now. Jeepers. Nobody read that book? See, I, I'm a, there you go, Daly. I love it. You should pick it up. Interesting read. Barna put it out. Barna Group. Don't agree with everything Mr. Barna says, but man, he's, he served the church well in helping us see re, some realities. He said this, David Kinneman, author of the book, we compared born-again Christians to non-born-again adults. We found that born-agains were distinct on some religious variables, most notably owning more Bibles. Sheepers. I feel bad for a guy when we move. It's like, just grab the Bibles. Owning more Bibles. Going to church more often. Donating money to religious nonprofits. However... When it came to non-religious factors, the substance of people's daily choices, actions, and attitudes, listen to this, there were few meaningful gaps between born-again Christians and non-born-again. Christians emerged as distinct in the areas people would expect, some religious activities and commitments, but not in other areas of life. In virtually every study we conduct, representing thousands of interviews every year, Born-again Christians failed to display much attitudinal or behavioral evidence of transformed lives. We're conformists. But the gospel empowers and summons us to something radically different than conformity. In our marriages, there should be a radical difference between the marriage that is, has, has received the mercy of God and the one who has not. Radical difference in what it represents, how it makes decisions. How about business? Same thing. Radical difference how you do biz than the other guy or the other girl, right? Radical difference how you handle your decisions, what you value, your financial dealings, business transactions. There should be a radical difference because of the mercy of God. Not because you're great. Not because we're going out there to just be different and be better. But because the mercy of God does that when received. And I love it because what I see here is that the mercy of God extinguishes our conformity to this world. And yet it ignites the transformation into Christlikeness. That's what mercy does. If we have a conformity issue, we've got a mercy issue. Right? God's mercy extinguishes our conformity to this world and ignites our transformation. The gospel doesn't just change our eternal resting place. It changes the very fabric of our lives. Look at Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Instead of conforming, instead of going with the flow, Change. The gospel is calling us to change. Yes, it's a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. It's a step-by-step process of maturing over time. Truth and love, community, the Holy Spirit. But the reality is when we receive the mercy of God, we're on a completely different path. We are completely different people in ever-increasing fashion. Yeah, sure, we stumble, we trip, we fall into potholes that the gospel pulls us out of all the time. 
But we're still on the journey. We're still changing. Metamorphosis, that's what that word comes from. Be transformed. Be different. Change. In the renewal of your mind. I love that. Do you know that repentance simply defined is just the changing of mind? The changing of mind. See, they, they saw Jesus as a nobody, a blasphemer. Peter preaches the gospel and says, no, 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 no. This is Jesus. And they said, well, now what do we do? Well, repent. That is, change your mind about Jesus. He's not the blasphemer. He's the Lord in Christ. Oh, that's different. I'm changing my mind about Jesus. That's what's happening here. We're changing our mind, and in the process of our mind being renewed and our mind being changed, our lives change. We're no longer the people that we once were. We are no longer enslaved to the same sins, at least in degree, that we've always been. God's doing something new in us. He's renewing us. That's what the gospel does. Tell me your scope of salvation is not being expanded today. It's not just heaven. It's change. God is going to mess with your routine of being conformed to the world. He's going to mess with that. It's uncomfortable. Surely it brings pain. Surely it's sweat and tears and difficulty. But the reality is, is God's using all of that, right? That by testing, by testing, you will be able to discern what is the will of God, right? This is life, circumstances. So as we're changing our mind, as we're walking repentance, we're refusing to be conformed to the ways and the values of this world. And by the way, that, that you can still wear jeans. That's not what we're talking about. It's okay. You can still watch the Steelers games. God still loves you. Okay, we're talking about things that are much deeper in the heart. The fabric of our values, the desires, and the decisions that we make. That's what we're talking about here. But it's going to be different. We're not conforming to the world, but we are ever-changing now. And it's painful. It comes through circumstances and testing and trial and tribulation. But man, oh man, as difficult as it is, does it not bear the fruit that we desire? Amen. Look at what it says. Amen. Not my notes, Mike. The scriptures. Look what it says. By testing, you may discern. You may understand. You might know what is God's will. Without a renewed mind, you can't know God's will. Without a, a decision to say no to the world and its values, we're not going to know God and His will. We're not going to know. We may think the ways of this world is what? Is, is good and acceptable and perfect. But it's not. But what we long for is that. What is good and acceptable and perfect. And the good news is, as we decide to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as we refuse to be conformed to this world, and as we commit ourselves to God honoring, Christ representing change, guess what? We know God's will. Ah, beat that. You can't wrap that up. You can't get that at Best Buy. You'll know God's will. And you'll know it to be for what it is. Good. Pleasing. Perfect. That's God's heart for you. I want you to know Him and His ways. Not just, oh, I know what that's about, but know Him. Intimately. Relationship. I want you to know Him. That's why He poured out His mercy into your life, that you would receive it, to be changed by it, and to present your bodies to Him in worship. That's what God's doing. So much bigger than just getting you out of the fiery pits of hell. I'm so excited about that, and you should be too. Amen. Amen. 
But there's so much more. God's mercy is grounds. There it is. God's mercy is grounds for you as God's people to live a faithful life of worship. You may be overwhelmed now, but you're hearing this this high call, this summons, this authority from God. Yeah, that's fair. But understand this, God's mercy is, is grounds for that. That's the only reason we make this plea tonight as we start the new year. Ask you to commit yourself to changing into Christ's likeness because of the mercy of God. God's mercy is grounds for you as the people of God to live a faithful life of worship. If I can just, for a moment, step away here, just talk about church here. That's what Renovation Church exists for. It's not right there in the text, but man, the text points us to this. Reminds us of this. It shows us what church is all about. It's about the glory of God, primarily. And how is the glory of God achieved? By equipping Christ's people to live a faithful life of worship. That's what the church is here for. For every single one of you. For all the people that live in this community. It's here for the glory of God so that you might change. So that you might become more like Jesus. People today, church today, we define success in a real jacked up corporate way. How many people, how much money, and is anybody furious with the pastor? (laughs) Right? Dwight Smith talks about that. The churches typically define success that way. We can't define success that way. It's good news for a lot of empty seats here often too, isn't it? How many people? How much money? Right? We can't look at those things and say, ah, success. What's going on? in the fabric of our lives as we're doing community together. That's what it exists for. That's what Renovation Church is all about. And if you see anything, friends, that says, ah, that's not about what you said we were about, speak up. We'll shut it down. Because it's all about the glory of God. That's how we define success. It's all about 100% of our people, all of us, here, those who couldn't make it, all of our community that is in relationship with Jesus and representing Jesus in the substantive nature of their lives, equipping you to live a faithful life of worship. That's what our leadership and the ministry of Renovation Church exists for too. God to be glorified, right? You think of our missional communities. You say, man, all we ever talk about is how I got to get involved in a missional community. You better believe it. Why? Because we're worshiping missional communities? Everyone say, eh. No, we're not worshiping missional communities. But we understand the purpose of the church. We understand why we exist. And it's our chosen format. It's our context where these things occur. So when we talk about missional communities, when we beat the drum, of if you're not in a missional community, please find a way to get engaged there's not one in your neighborhood, maybe we can get one started. If it's not a great time, let's try to find a time. Whatever obstacle's in the way, don't give up. On, you're going to hear it constantly. Get in a missional community. Why? Because we want to pad our numbers. Oh, we got 45 people in missional community. No. Because the glory of God is at stake in your life. Because the equipping of the church is happening in the context of missional communities. Spirit, 
Scripture, and community. Life change comes as a result of that. So all when we talk about you getting in a missional community, we're saying, we want you to change. We want you to be like Jesus. This is how we've organized ourselves for that. Why do Paul, Daly, Daly family, Tim and Elise Bissell, uh, Jeremy and Trish, why do these folks who, who are leading missional communities now and, and, and have led them in the past, why do they open their homes? Why do they invest all the time? Because they exist for the glory of God in your life. They love you in such a way that they want to inspire change. That's why they do it. Week in and week out. They understand that it's all about providing a format and a framework for the spirit and the scriptures and relationships to do what they do. Make you like Jesus. So as I think about this, I think to myself, man, there, there should be within each and every one of us a welling up of gratitude and excitement about what these people have, have given themselves to. That's why they do it. For you. For your growth in Christ. Why ministry teams? I mean, what's the point, really, of setting up chairs, tearing down chairs? What's the point? Why send the kids out every night? Man, we just need a break. You know, some of your parents are like, it's all about the glory of God. Equipping those kids. It's not just for babysitting. All of our children go downstairs every single week, except for family Sundays. Why? Because of the glory of God. Because we believe that if we get them together in relationship, right, and we teach them the scripture, the Spirit's going to do what He does. Change them. And disciple them. And make them like Jesus. Everything that we do, our ministry team leaders, our children's teachers, everything that we do needs to be filtered through this existence. Why? God's glory. Why? The equipping of Christ's people to live a faithful life of worship. If anything we're doing is not doing those things, we're done with it. Now granted, we're going to talk about another thing next week, so... We're not done with the series. But you get my point. It's what it's all about. Our administrative support. Why financial reporting? Why uh, organizing? Why rotation schedules? All to serve the mission. You're probably like, man, he's going into everything. Absolutely. It's what it's all about. Got to see that. Got to see that. Our leadership, our ministry, strives on the basis of this. God's mercy. God's mercy in Christ. Is grounds for God's people to live a faithful life of worship. So today, receive and reflect upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Don't leave tonight just kind of ho-hum. You don't know Jesus? Receive him. He will receive you. He died for you. He loves you. Don't leave tonight without accepting Jesus Christ and knowing that he accepts you. Reflect upon the mercy you have received, O Christian. Respond by giving all that you are to all that He is. There's an area of your life that is unsurrendered. Can we just admit that? Let the Spirit work on your heart. What's the area of your life that is unsurrendered to the God who gave you all of His mercy? 
Is it time? Is it money? Is it a relationship? Is it an idol, a besetting sin? What is it that you keep shoving under the rug? I think we need to repent, too, of being conformists. To going with the flow. Turn from our sin and run to Jesus. At the end of the day, remember, God's going to give you all that you need to do it. Right? When you're overwhelmed, don't forget you're overshadowed. God's mercy is grounds for God's people to live a faithful life of worship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we have merely scratched the surface tonight of your mercy. It is good. It is sweet. It is rooted in promise and Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We praise you for pouring it out on the world to be received by faith. I pray that as we receive it, that we would be summoned, that we would respond to it, to give all that we are to you, to surrender everything to you, to walk away from conformity to this world. Pursue our change. A change that in ever-increasing fashion enables us to look and display the person, character, glory, love, justice of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We ask this in His name. Amen.